from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Derek Hamilton is the Secretary Director of the current Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at The Ohio State University and is a professor at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs. He teaches policy, economics, and sociology. His areas of research include but are not limited to stratification economics, economic and social policy, and race and ethnicity. His writings have been featured in the New York Times, the Senate Magazine, the American Economic Review, the Review of Black Political Economy, and many more. So it's great that we finally get to do this. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be on your show. <laughs> so, you know, one of the areas that the Racing Capitalism Project is trying to beef up, and it's sort of ironic given my background and Megan's background, is the empirical side of, you know, the type of work that you do, the type of work that at one point I did, where it's very much theory driven. We contribute to theory making but we also look at how the real world operates. I thought we could talk a little bit today about some of the work you've been doing with your colleagues for the last few years, where that's going, what type of work you're gonna be doing in the future, but tied to the, the current political situation, in fact, the current political economy where we see millions of people literally suffering and economic outcomes that were decades trending up, upwards, um, as you point out, as many of us pointed out over the last at this point, 20, 25 years, have begun to reverse. So in one of your recent articles that you wrote in a symposium on neoliberalism, you talk about how over the last 45 years, and I actually should have known this figure, but for some reason I didn't, that all the productivity gains just about have gone to the upper and upper middle classes. One, how did that happen in your opinion? Two, what are the consequences? And why is 1973 such a major dividing line? Yeah, I mean, that is the great question. How is it that we can have this empirical divide of all the resources going to the elite while the working class and the vast majority of Americans pretty much stay stagnant? This, right, how, how do we not get to change? So a lot of credit should go to EPI, Economic Policy Institute, for producing that graph. It's commonly known as the clam graph. And, and what happens is you have this almost one-to-one -one lockstep increase with productivity and real wages up to 1973. So that's the kind of economy you want. You want where you want one where productivity is rising and that most Americans are benefiting from that increase in productivity. I took graduate courses mm -hmm. in economics in my political science program. That we were taught that's the way the world worked. Yeah. Productivity <laughs> increases rebound to workers and people who are producing. That's right. But no. 1973 is a demarcation, and that's when the term the clam comes into play, because you get this clam-like shape where productivity continues to rise, mm -hmm. but yet real wages becomes flat. Exactly. And that's the question. We have, and I, I think in the way you phrased the question, kind of the answer is dear. There's been this rhetorical technique that has led us to believe that the market and facilitating the market and corporate corporations with deregulation, facilitating corporations with 
tax cuts and even beyond that tax subsidies was somehow going to trickle down to all of us and and that clearly didn't occur so you have a rhetoric that is at odds with the empirics and then here's a key component which i'm sure you can relate to and you've talked a lot about in your work was missing from this political capture in terms of rhetoric and economic reality of consolidation is the role that race plays and we talk about race often as if it's simply an issue we say okay there's wage inequality inequality let's think about the race issue that's the wrong way to think about it race has been a pillar in that relationship in fact how is it that you can get a public to go along with a rhetoric a theory and a discourse that is at odds with reality well here's where race comes into play because blacks become demonized we get the nomenclature of welfare queens we get the nomenclature of deadbeat dads and we get this thought that somehow government is engaging in a way to tip the scales in the favor of these irresponsible individuals and and that is the rhetoric that is sold to the masses of people and then what do they gain i'll, I'll finish real quick with this point and that is they gain even though their vertical in vertical position on the inequality scale might be worsening they gain horizontal positioning however unequal we may be at least we're not black and that's what was sold to them that's been sold to them with very few exceptions in american history since the antebellum days that's the type of rhetoric that before war, before the civil war led dock workers in places like baltimore to make sure that there weren't white workers me black work, workers uh, working next to them it's led by us historian pointing out led after the civil war after reconstruction the railroad workers and their unions to say no we uh we want to get all black out of this industry in total it's what Myra Barrera says in racing class in southwest after world war 2 white unions oppose capital law <laughs> of all things because where capital wanted to have a segmented labor market white workers said no we want to have an exclusionary labor market based on race so that's been a a popular trope not just trope but yeah. structural feature yeah. of, of 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 the american economy for literally hundreds of years and it's quite vicious i sent a quote to one of my co-authors uh, just this week that i my found in you know in a progressive policy outlet where the quote was from southern person southern white person saying i would rather go to hell than let Mexicans then let my tax dollars go to Obamacare so that Mexicans are welfare queens quote unquote and these are people that are suffering from opioid addiction whose life expectancy is going down whose suicide rate is going up they need health care far more than someone like I do and they brought the illogical aspect so there's both an illogical aspect that would argue in terms of how people code what their interests and away from their material interests in some ways not just in the long run and the short run but also a structural part of it too mm-hmm. i think we can go back to du bois um, and argue that there there's certainly a you talk about the horizontal dimension the sort of status dimension mm-hmm. but there's also a material dimension mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. whether it's housing and wealth etc so you talk about in the article neoliberal economics what do you mean by that Right and I think it goes beyond economics. I think it's a neoliberal frame. The genre of economics might be neoclassical economics, mm-hmm. but we have this ideology that pervades our government, pervades our corporate structure, 
pervasive our, our general public discourse of what some people have labeled neoliberalism. And with that, you know, there's no hard definition of it, but I, I would probably describe it as the belief that it's almost a dogma that markets become the inevitable, the efficient, the self-regulating, the colorblind arbiter, the decisive mechanism to make decisions with regards to distribution, production, whether it's economic or otherwise, to solve all our problems. That's what I believe neoliberalism, putting all that faith in a free market system to, to make decisions as it relates to our well-being. It was funny, I was on a panel, it's terrible, I'm not gonna be able to give the person attribution because I'm forgetting his name, but he made, he made an analogy that I thought was hilarious and also telling. He talked about if we have children and we were to tell them that all you have to do is act in your self-interest and by way of some invisible hand, the best outcomes will accrue to society, we, we would probably be prosecuted for child malpractice. <laughs> he, he said it more eloquent than me. Um, but, you know, there are some things that the market might be great at deciding. Um, but any, even this notion of market without, without a frame of politics and without a frame of history is almost a straw man or some, you know, amorphous thing that we give shape to. And we need to recognize that. There's no such thing as a natural market. There are always some forces that help define what, what transactions are and what they can be. But yet we've been captured by this, you know, again, almost religion. It, one, one could probably tie it into to principles by which we define religion and the faith in which we, we have developed in terms of what the market can do. And this is, I think, one of the aspects that we don't talk about neoliberalism within the academy of how the splintering of the disciplines has really contributed to this type of mythology. Mm -hmm. So you look at some of the work in what I'll call critical history or critical legal studies or um, critical even political science, the work of people like Megan Francis, Quinn Slobodian, who was recently on the program with Adam Getachew, um, former colleague Bernard Harcourt, and they all show historically, theoretically, that markets cannot exist without the state. The state mm -hmm. not only sets up markets, but sets up markets in ways that privileges some and disadvantages others. And that in the United States in particular, but not certainly not exclusively, markets are, are set up to do so two things. Protect the holders of capital and wealth, and to preserve white supremacy. Yeah. And, and you know, that's not so far off from economics, except economics doesn't have the, the language or, or theories around white supremacy. Um, but economics, as a mainstream approach, would probably articulate that the role of government is to facilitate markets, to enforce property rights and facilitate markets. But I think that part of the neoliberal mythology, as opposed mm -hmm. to you know serious neoliberal, I mean there are serious neoliberal scholars, but part of the neoliberal mythology is that markets become naturalized, right? Yeah. They don't need state intervention. Yeah. <laughs> The original neoliberals were all about the state, but the state is acting in certain ways to facilitate the penetration of new markets, to, to, to set up financial, financialization um, and yeah. lower barriers uh, between states. And, and they don't even practice what they preach because they advocate for forms of imperfect competition. For example, the ways in which labor can engage with capital. A lot of the rhetoric that comes around from neoliberal is supportive of, of ways that tilt power in favor of corporations. So, you know, it's not, as, it's not even as if 
we have the tenets of corporation of of competition, and we allow them to be applied in a in a more egalitarian way, where workers actually have some bargaining power to engage with capital. Just in small segment, but important recent finding in NLRB is ruling the graduate students who provide most a ton of labor in our universities. As one, one graduate student said, universities cannot function mm-hmm. without graduate student labor, and all of a sudden they're just rude not to be workers. Mm-hmm. But the same thing with Uber and Lyft drivers. They're entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not employees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to, to escape our Rizzo laws. <laughs> one of the other things you said about the sort of 1973 was that is your, your, your argument that neoliberal economics, I think is the phrase you used in, in, the, in the article, Failed black people. One, what do you mean by that? But you also tie that to mass incarceration. Could you say more about that as well? Yeah, okay, so let me even think about the historical evolution. We, we were on a pathway from the Great Depression in which we had a shift in the ways in which government engaged with, with American, America in general. We had the New Deal Revolution. We had post-war policies. And as you pointed out, to a large extent, there was the Faustian bargain in which blacks were excluded from a lot of the benefits that generated wealth for the typical Americans that weren't black. And they were excluded by both design and implementation. By design, there were attributes of the federal legislation that prohibited discrimination monitoring, that prohibited anti-discrimination enforcement. And then by implementation, the implementation of the policies were often left at the hands of localities or states that were hell-bent on promoting Jim Crow, for example. So that was ways in which you didn't literally have to say black people don't get benefits, but in practice, black people were prohibited from from the benefits of it. And then also by design, the obvious one that uh, many people might be aware of by now, uh, for example, with Social Security, domestic and agricultural workers were excluded from the benefits of, of, of that program that provided economic security in the twilight of people's life. And that was obviously by design given so many black people in those industries. Nonetheless, we also had a civil rights movement that came into play where there was some improvements, albeit not as large as we would have desired, and there was virtually no improvements with regards to wealth, but some improvements with regards to, well, actually, let me not downplay it, lots of improvement with regards to black educational attainment and even relative reductions in wage disparities between blacks and whites. Then 1973 comes along, and that's when we start to see the ratcheting up of a backlash against some of these gains, not just for black people, but for Americans in general, but blacks became the political fodder by which this backlash could be implemented and embraced in a more wider scale. And uh, you know, I want to make the point or, or amplify the point that you made earlier. Uh, it's not necessarily irrational for white people, white working class individuals to adopt this ideology. On the one hand, collectively, if they were to engage in a racial coalition, they would have a bigger movement to fight against some of these capitalist forces or corporatist forces that allow for this hoarding. But on the other hand, there is this thing that is both psychological and tangible called white privilege, where there is material benefits associated with not being 
the first fired or the last hired in an economic swing, downswing. That, that's where we were. I kind of forgot the question, but maybe in that long <laughs> soliloquy, I, I answered it. <laughs> well, there's one part of it we didn't get to yet, but I'll, let, me, let me just add a little bit to what run by you, sort of the ancient version of what I used to argue, but it's been tempered a lot by the work that you and your colleagues have done, is that a lot of the studies, for example, wages and, and income of African Americans from let's say the 40s on and the, and when we did see a rise, attribute the rise to two or three things, all of which to some degree the state either was directly involved in or facilitated. One was unionization. Blacks became, when it was the urbanization and unionization went hand in hand. Blacks became very highly unionized after World War II and in fact were some of the most militant members of those, of those unions. Mm-hmm. And the other was that there seems to have been a positive increase in income, albeit again, as you pointed out, not what we might have wanted, but still positive, with the coming into being of various forms of anti-discrimination law in, in the workplace. So we see some rises with those type of occupational shifts, wage discrimination enforcement, at least at a minimum level, see rising incomes for blacks up to the point that you start talking about where things start going south. Mm-hmm. And, but the state is also responsible for blacks not having similar gains in wealth. Mm-hmm. And this again is New Deal based. As you point out in another article, as many people have pointed out, most Americans' wealth is based on home ownership and the New Deal programs. Not the banks, but the New Deal itself mandating that loans don't go into black neighborhoods gave enormous incentives to white homeowners not to have blacks in those neighborhoods, and also enormous incentives to banks not to loan, to in, loan money to blacks and black homeowners, prospective homeowners and the like. Another thing you just mentioned like two minutes ago, which is to the degree that you can maintain your wealth, it means that you need to have some type of income when you're old so that you don't run through your wealth if you're going to have anything to pass on. And by, as you pointed out, by being excluded from job categories that many blacks and brown people participated in, it meant that to the degree that you had any wealth, you're going to use it up because you didn't have Social Security. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of points. One is, you're right, the banks were pernicious, but they were aided by the government. So there was this collusion, and that's the, you know, that, that is the problem. State intervention to tilt the scale and help this type of extraction and extortion, that's really problem, problematic. Yeah. That is a predator state. I mean, they drew the maps for redlining. Exactly. Right. I've and seen then, some of those original maps. They're, they're chilling. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to my institute. Kerwin Institute is now trying to his, map those historical, look at those historical mappings and see how they overlay today. What university but, is that at? Is that a university up north? <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me say the word that the, we were not allowed to trademark, the Ohio State <laughs> University. That's oh, that one. <laughs> somebody whose whole family down there went to Michigan. I guess I can live with it. You know, I, I got a postdoc from Michigan, but now Ohio State writes my check, so the Ohio State University. I had a similar switch in loyalty after my first job in Michigan. So, um, but getting back to our conversation, we were talking about wealth and wealth creation yeah. and how blacks were excluded. You know, another mythology of this neoliberal paradigm is the notion that people through their efforts, through their knowledge, can create wealth. That simply through hard work and studying hard, that that's the pathway towards wealth creation. That's never been the pathway beyond anecdotes of wealth creation en masse. That it was literally government intervention 
that created a white asset-based middle class. And Ira Katznelson is a hero of mine for writing that book when affirmative action was white because that lays it out so clearly and so profoundly that it was through government programs that put people in vehicles of asset accumulations like a home, like or the a GI bill, the GI bill, like a debt-free education, like some capital to start a business that literally allowed them to passively grow their wealth. Most Americans don't engage in active savings. It is the most elite amongst us that engage in active savings, and that's not even a new phenomenon. That's been a persistent phenomenon that most of us consume what we receive, but we generate wealth in a passive way by having the automatic vehicle of a mortgage that's contributing towards your wealth as opposed to a rent payment where you're contributing towards someone else's wealth. So, so we need to understand how wealth is created. It's not this self-made notion. It was literally government giveaways through things like the Homestead Bill. Now, blacks were largely excluded for the reasons we discussed previously. So that, that is how wealth is created. And if we were to define the middle class in terms of white wealth, there has never been a black middle class. We can talk about some black people that have been able to get education, been able to get income, but never have we had a substantial group that could be defined as middle class if the definition is wealth. One quick point, then go back to part of the question we haven't dealt with yet. You, you've talked about the Homestead Act. Whether you look at Walter Johnson's work on the South or much of the studies of indigenous studies and settler colonialism, the, the two, two of the major phenomena that drove wealth creation and asset creation through the state policies were dispossession of indigenous peoples yeah. and slavery. Yep. Um, as was point, has been pointed out, the value of slaves in 1859 was greater than that of all land, all corporate assets, all financial assets in the U.S. That was capital in yeah. the U.S. Yeah, no, I'm working with Nate Rosenberg, Brian Stuckey, and Dania Francis, who's now at University of Massachusetts, Boston, where we're looking at land loss to farmers over time by government Mm -hmm. complicit and aided extraction, extortion, both through fraud, both through allowing outright terror where the land was seized and trying to calculate the present value of what that land would be if not for this government extraction. So we, we got this irony where um, government has, in a correct way, facilitated wealth for its people but not done it for blacks. So I don't mean correct in that excluding blacks, but government engaging and facilitating wealth, that is the right thing to do. The problem is they excluded blacks. And then worse, they extracted from blacks and allowed other people to extract from blacks from the examples that you gave with regards to banking, to large scale agricultural producers who were able to take black farmland. And there are many more examples of literally capital being seized from blacks when they have had the rare opportunity to accumulate it. I wrote my senior thesis on that when I was uh, in AFM at Berkeley. And one of the things that just blew my mind was even around the World War II era, the way that the government would take black land in the Hilton, in, 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 around Hilton Head in the Sea Islands. Mm -hmm. Say, we're gonna put an Air Force base on it or something like that, which it did it, but then turn it over to hotel developers so that mm -hmm. now you have an all white, rich Disneyland which used to be a very rich black community, South Carolina and Georgia, um, in that part of the, of the country.
I think research that some of the younger scholars are doing is beginning to show even more direct connection between how, for example, the Nixon administration viewed the black power movement in the late 60s and early 70s and the need to start a war on crime as a way to criminalize black politics. And there's been a lot of ironies that have been tragic. And so some of the organizations that came out that started off as political but then became part of you know, street youth organizations as a, after the devastation that the advent of neoliberal policies, um, for example, the the elimination of manufacturing from South Central LA and other manufacturing areas where African Americans have been uh, gainfully employed, such as the steel mills on the south, on the southern borders of, of Chicago and elsewhere, um, the devastation of Detroit. This had multiple effects, not just economic but social and political as well. As well. One of the critiques that some activists have very justly raised of social scientists like us is that we're very good or maybe pretty good at diagnosing problems, but have been less good about offering solutions, alternatives, developing policies to get us out of the type of economic, political, and social uh, devastation that our communities have suffered over the past decade. I know that you've been paying quite a bit of attention to the ongoing presidential campaigns, and why don't we start by asking how do you see the economic policies of the various candidates on the Democratic side? Yeah, and, and before I answer that, I want to give homage to you and your work related to some of the stuff we were just you you just raised with regards to collective efficacy, and especially when we start thinking about the solution and the ways that mass incarceration might have diffused some of the progress that we were on in a trajectory of, and you know the point that should be made is. Perhaps our greatest strength is our collective efficacy, our ability to come together and to mobilize en masse, to not think of us in isolated individualism, but rather to agitate and to use a political process or, or frankly capture a political process so that it can be more fair and that these uh, structures do not inhibit our progress. You know, really quick, also, this whole notion of neoliberalism Maybe one of the worst attributes of it is when blacks themselves start adopting this notion that it is not me, but rather these other blacks that are inhibiting our progress. When we start othering each other, I think that's really problematic. When we start buying into the notions of if only I work hard, if only I study hard, I will have a pathway to mobility. And the reason why those others don't is because they choose not to, because they are deficit people. And part of neoliberalism was to infuse that notion of welfare queens and deadbeat dads on us as well. I mean, that's uh, Megan Francis and I wrote an article in Public Culture that made that point, and that's had a devastating effect on collective efforts in black politics. And not just black politicians and black artists, popular artists that have embraced that ideology, but also we can see it in the academy quite strongly. Yeah. Both in the humanities and social sciences and, and black studies departments and people doing work on the type of issues we work on. So... I mean, we, we have scenarios where poor people literally blame themselves for their predicament despite trying to work hard. And, and you know, I'll, I'll make one other point, and that is... The rhetoric and the efforts to try to keep working hard to overcome structural barriers, what we don't answer, ask and what we don't consider is, at what cost? 
when we start exactly. thinking about some of these health disparities across race and why these health disparities get even larger when we move into the upper echelons of society. Now, clearly a black person with more education tends to have better health, health outcomes than a black person with less education. But if we compare across race, the disparities get larger. Why does that paradox exist? And part of it, I think we can trace to the work of Sherman James, the, mm -hmm. um, the great public health researcher who my partner studied with many years ago. And it's quite clear that when you move into these positions that you take it all upon yourself, the, yep. the way that stress and other factors that are a product of a racist society. Yep. If you're by yourself, you don't have much uh, shelter yeah, that, physically. That John Henry fable is vicious, right? I, I mean, the, per, the my understanding is it, it's based off a literal human being, and I don't want to disparage that person in any way. That person probably overcame lots of barriers and achieved great things. But at the end of the day, the fable is work hard, overcome your obstacles, but what's the cost? He dies at the end. We, I'm not sure that's the message we want to tell our children, to, to work so hard to the point where you die. And he dies for the railroad barons. Yeah. Now, this, this is not the society that I want to live in. I want to live in a society where, you know, I'm all for hard work. I'm all for studying hard. But one where we really have agency to uh, acquire mobility and structures to facilitate that. That's what we need to be. You know, I'll give one other. There's no question Sherman James has been profound in my work and, and my understanding of society. Jen Cohen, who is at Miami of Ohio, University of Miami at Ohio, we're working on this paper that I think is, is uh, really making the point and driving home the fact that when we ask people to work twice as hard to get by, what are the costs? Well, they manifest in things like Health, health outcomes that are negative. So how do we get, where do we go from here? Oh, the solution. <laughs> the Martin <laughs> Luther <King> question. <laughs> well, uh, one thing is we need, it, it, we need to recognize that our problems are at least as much political as they are economic and maybe even more political. So that, that uh, critical ingredient that you have uh, told us your whole life, which is coming together as a group and agitating change and with collective politics, that's critical. I think if we want racial coalition, ultimately white people would have to give up the benefits of white privilege. And that's not an easy ask because we just talked about the material and psychological benefits associated with it. But those material and psychological benefits, they're not immoral, they're amoral. Actually, they're immoral. I, I changed my mind on that. They're, they're, they're immoral. They're predicated on a self-interested notion of accumulation with no bounds. If we start shifting how we measure economic well-being to that around human capabilities, around investing in people, around thinking about humanity, around thinking about morality, and around thank the young people for pushing this to the forefront, mm -hmm. sustainability, that's the game changer. That is the game changer where we can get a racial coalition, where we start thinking about a collective interest, then we can have that racial coalition. So, so that maybe is the political side. On the economic side, I think you know we have a blueprint. What I'm about to say, it's not radical, nor is it new. We have a period in time when we were heading towards an economic bill of rights. It was not fulfilled. It, it, it began to start with things like social security, but an economic bill of rights where we consider 
the goods and services that are so critical in people's lives to have agency, dignity, and self-determination that those goods in terms of access, in terms of quality, should not be rationed by a price mechanism or profit incentive where you have firms holding back, uh, charging excess prices in order to meet their fiduciary responsibility of profit maximization. That should not be how those specific goods are determined, at least at some baseline level. So, you know, I'm being vague a little bit. I can be specific. We could talk about Medicare for all. We could talk about a right to a college education without debt. We could talk about canceling the debt. We can talk about ensuring that housing is a right. We can talk about, I mean, I, we could talk about the right to a guaranteed income. We can talk about a right to a federal job guarantee to ensure that everybody has access to employment and employment with reasonable wages, employment with reasonable working condition, and employment that is dedicated towards improving our public and physical our public physical and human infrastructure. This is what I'm talking about an economic bill of rights. We can have a government that's ensuring that discrimination is not taking place not simply by being reactive but proactive. Why don't we send out audits on firms that receive government contracts? And I don't mean audits in terms of the paperwork. I mean it in terms of the academic approach where you send out actors. Why don't we test and see if they engage in in a hiring practice that are fair and equitable? Let, let's test it. Let's put it, let's send out a black perspective employer, employee and a white perspective employee, and let's see if indeed they treat the people the same. Let's look at it in the consumer space. We have the tools to proactively detect discrimination, and we have the mechanisms to enforce irresponsible behavior. In other words, it's not just prejudice in the, in the, in the hearts and minds, but the problem with prejudice is behavioral when you actually do something to somebody that restricts them. So we have the tools that we've used in other domains. For example, if you go through the airport, we know that TSA is randomly audited with people trying to get items through to see how well they're functioning in terms of protecting us. Well, we should see if indeed corporations are practicing what they preach when they say that they engage in fair and equitable hiring. So I want to make a historical comment, but I also want to push back a tiny bit on a little bit of what you just said. So the historical comment, one of the reasons that we don't have this economic bill of rights, why it got de derailed during the New Deal, according to your former colleague, historian Julia Ott, mm. she was talking about this on, on the podcast several months ago. Well, Julia's always right, so I can see it right away. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm you're, just you're, joking. You're not, not going to disagree with me. <laughs> okay. What she argues mm -hmm. is that all these strict segregationists controlled the Senate Finance Committee under the New Deal. And they became anti-New Dealers when they decided that going any further on economic bill of rights for everybody would undermine white supremacy. Yeah. And they and they she gone into the archives and found smoking guns that say, "Oh no, we can't do this. Um, that's going to undermine white rule." Yeah. And so once again, we're going to sacrifice our fellow white people for, so that capital stays in place and white supremacy stays in place. Well, I want to push back a little bit. It's not that I disagree with audit studies. I actually participated in one when I was an undergraduate, a housing audit, audit study. I was one of the testers. We know that audit studies in labor show that there's 
labor discrimination against African Americans and Latinx population. We know that what type of accent one has, uh, whether one is perceived to have a Mexican accent, will lead to discriminatory behavior. We know this in consumer markets, loan markets, labor markets. When one of your Nobel Prize winning colleagues, now I am being facetious, <laughs> uh, said that all studies didn't work because the testers are trying to prove That would be James Heckman. Let's call him out. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, colleague of mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're trying to provoke the reaction that they found then some very smart, at the time, young economists said, okay, we're just going to put in different names. Yeah. The name study, which was so, so powerful, that we don't have people provoking anything. We have a set of names that sound black and a set of names that sound white. Yeah. Un, un, unequivocal result. So my, my point is not that all the studies don't work, that they have worked. We know we have the evidence, and people don't care. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that we should ignore them because of that, but we need, it seems to me that we have to go beyond that if we're going to get some type of just economic and racial justice. Yeah, I mean, two points. One is, let's even go back to Heckman's point about, for example, Hispanics signaling bad soft skills because they had a beard. Well, what the hell does a beard have to do with soft skills? This is a this is an attribute that is... That detail <laughs> I had not heard. I did not see that paper. Well, that was part of the critique that he offered. He offered a, I mean, we don't have to spend our time talking no, about uh, no. the, the Heckman critique because it's clearly... You know, that, that Heckman's, you know, I don't want to disparage, he has done a great deal of work teaching us about selection in economics and how to correct it. I've, so used, the man, I've used selection bias <laughs> correct, correcting because of his work. But his ideology with regards to discrimination is flat out wrong. Yes. And we don't have to spend our time disproving it because no. the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah. But I agree with you. You can't just do the study. You need teeth and enforcement to change yeah. behavior. And that's the point. So I'm an economist. I know that people respond to incentives. I know that behavior changes based on structures and the ways in which things are rewarded and punished. So if the government is engaged in proactively auditing corporations, particularly those that receive procurement, well, you know what? You cancel those contracts. You know what? You have a justice department that can force anti-discrimination laws. If people go to jail, if people are fined, that's when behavior changes. And to me, that's the point. So, you know, for example, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work on implicit bias. Kerwin Institute has been one of the leaders in, in uh, doing the work on implicit bias. But implicit bias, knowing that people might be socialized to have these preferences for certain groups and lack of preference for another group, that's not enough. Philip Goff is doing this work now also, and where it is, if we want to make change, we need accountability. And with accountability comes some sanctions yeah. or incentives. And, you know, I'm not just one to, to sanction. Give carrots. So if you, if you start uh, doing these audits and you find good behaving firms, reward them. So and that we have not done it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep, yep, yep. And then at some point, you know, I was incomplete in my solutions list. And at the risk of being sanctioned, <laughs> we, we should have a conversation about reparations as well. So let's do reparations and let's talk about which candidates match the sort of Bill of Rights broadly defined that includes both race-specific and, and universal components to it. So it's not a secret that I have written on reparations, I've collected data on reparations. I am writing with Allison Harris, a young colleague of mine at Yale, on reparations as we speak. 
you've written about it with colleagues of yours at various points, so we're probably not going to be able to start a fight, but we might, <laughs> we might have people marching outside of our office. <laughs> so just to, to summarize the findings and, uh, and to say a little bit of what the current argument is, the findings are very clear. We've been collecting data since 2000, and some of the original studies I did with Larry Bobo, and then and published on those, and we've been collecting data. We have data through 2017. So we have, what we found was A, that um, there's overwhelming support both for an apology for slavery and Jim Crow and for reparations for among African Americans. Two, in a separate study, we found that African Americans really aren't looking, as one of my former colleagues in AFAM said, for a paycheck. They're, not, they're looking for investments in communities as forms of reparation. That's the preferred form of reparation. So you would avoid all these questions about who's really eligible, et cetera. We're talking about investing in communities, investing in human capital, and, and similar types of, uh, of collective investment. Three, we've also have found that anti-blackness is a critical component. What do I mean by that? We ran a survey experiment where we asked questions about Japanese internment and reparations for that and reparations for slavery. If we ask the reparations for slavery question first, support for reparations for Japanese internment went down. So if we did it the other way, there was no effect. So it was very clear that among white Americans only that the ideal reparations for black people was so strong it drove down just reparations for other people who have been racially oppressed as well. And that leads me to my final point, which is that through 2017, there was not only extraordinary low levels of support among white people for reparations, pretty much across the political divide, there was also very low support for even a symbolic apology. And that really blew us away when we first saw the data, but it's consistent and robust, robust across years, across studies. Yeah. And we still argue that you can't go forward, that the arguments of some of my black colleagues in political science, at least one who's fortunately retiring, that talking about race divides the working class is nonsense, because the working class has always been divided. And we are not going forward as a society unless we have a real conversation about race, racial disadvantage and racial privilege. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. And if we try to decipher some of it, well, you've already deciphered it, but if, if I think about some responses, I'd say the period by which we go back and do, some people call it truth and reconciliation, but the sobering acknowledgement of the ways in which the state has facilitated the exploitation, the extraction, and the extortion from the black community in an unjust, immoral way, that's critical for the reparations movement, right? We, the redress, if you just have the apology without redress, that's empty, but the apology is necessary. It is necessary if we ever are gonna get to changing the discourse and this anti-black sentiment. It is necessary that we do all this work where there's an official government, uh, government commissioned and recognized uh, authority that even erects monuments similar to what Germany did as a result of, of uh, Nazi Germany and their reactions to Jews, where it can't be erased, it can't be, it, you know, we, it can't be erased from our public memory, these atrocities that took place, and that there is a, a full-throated admittance that it was wrong, that it was wrong and shouldn't have been done. 
Can I ask a question? Sure, about sure. That? Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me when I was teaching in France a few years ago was that mm-hmm. every public school mm-hmm. has a plaque saying, so mm-hmm. many Jews, Jewish children from this school were sent to the camps. Mm-hmm. Every public school has that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I've also read from progressive, not conservative, progressive political theorists that they're against such a campaign in this country because they say that it's looking for backwards does not help us move forward. What, what would you say? Oh, that? it absolutely helps us move forward. If we think about contemporary issues in an ahistoric manner, we come up with the wrong conclusions. That's the mistake of many contemporary social scientists to have an ahistoric frame. The truth has to be told. The truth has to be remembered. Or we will, one, misinterpret the current, or two, we will repeat mistakes that we've made in the past. So I completely disagree with that. Um, but, you know, that, that truth and reconciliation goes beyond just some of, the, at some of the positive things we just discussed. Anti-blackness is weaponized. It's weaponized against black people, but it's also weaponized against poor people in general. We other white people with anti-black rhetoric. You know, I use a, a phrase that might get edited out if you were regulated by the FCC. We niggerize the poor, whether they're black or not, black or, or white. We, we basically characterize them as de- deficient, focused on the wrong things, don't want to do good, looking for handouts. These, these are all grounded in anti-black rhetoric. Sometimes people say they act like black people. Literally say that, yeah. <laughs> they, they might call them niggers, <laughs> which is sad. Um, a, a bad word that is sad. Moving forward to some of the redress, I think that, you know, we, we talk about if black people get a paycheck, they go out and buy Cadillacs. Well, for one, so damn what? If that's their preference and that's their choice. That's what, what economists would say. <laughs> what, what the problem is of buying Cadillacs is that they, on mass, don't own stock in General Motors. And we, we get this potentially unintended consequence of a stimulus as a result of consumption leading to even greater inequality because blacks don't own the means of production. They on mass don't own how things are produced, nor do they own land so that that stimulus will turn around and not only benefit them in, 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 at a one-time point, the iterative effect of that multiplier is such that being that they don't own those means of productions, you could end up with greater inequality. And one of the really startling points is that blacks don't own financial instruments because we talk about health disparities across black and white upper middle classes. Mm-hmm. Black and white, there's, even, there's an aggregated disparity between stock ownership, for example, yep. and asset, financial asset ownership between black and white middle classes as well. That's right. So, so, you know, my vision of reparations would include some transfer or some facilitation towards means of production and or land. I think that you know there's strong symbolism in offering literally a check where you say do whatever you want unconditional because we did wrong to you, but there's also a need to offer that form of, of repayment in the form of some some asset, something that can contribute to wealth and perpetuity. Um, but you know I'm I'm all for investments in community community assets as well. So assets can be thought of as individual assets or community assets. But the key is there needs to be some form of payment in terms of assets, or we can end up with the economic problem being exacerbated rather than closed. So 
one very small comment and one, one, one question that we can end on, I think. Mm -hmm. the, a quick comment, and I think this is, happens too often among both progressive and conservative crit critics, is that most of us who talk about reparations and reparative justice aren't excluding groups other than blacks. So whether we're talking about indigenous people or and, and claims of sovereignty and other claims, or talking about Latinx claims of people who've been uh, the victims of conquest, or whether in Oceania or, or the Southwest or elsewhere, these are not, we have to talk about all of it. I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a humanist, I, yeah, uh, right? Exactly. That, yeah, no, I, I absolutely I mean, agree. I study black people because that's what I do, but <laughs> yeah. it's not limited. Dance is not limited to black people. Yeah, I, I mean, indeed, these forces that play in the U.S. are replicated elsewhere in the world. Exactly. Some people describe these as uniquely American problems. They're not. have been. Right? That whole thing of, of economic and political consolidation and race being a pillar, it's... Global. Global. So the question is, the one that I hinted at at the beginning mm -hmm. I was going to ask, is when we think about the 2020 presidential campaign, which candidates are gaining are the closest or furthest away from something that looks like an economic bill, right, with both universal and racially specific programs? Yeah. Well, it probably is not a secret that I have been endeared by the Sanders campaign since 2016. I think that they are literally using the language of economic bill of rights. You know, I encourage everybody to look at their, what I believe is a comprehensive housing bill that can move us, if not to the right of housing, very close to it. So, I, you know, I think that their campaign is offering a continuation from where we left off at the New Deal. But I am, I am clear that Sanders and his people understand the role of race and other groups, despite some of the rhetoric to the contraire. So what, what I envision that he, for example, is interested in doing is an economic bill of rights that is both race, gender, disability established, all these different identities, that it's conscious of those identities, and that in the implementation and the design, unlike we did with the New Deal, they will be proactive in, in ensuring inclusion along those dimensions. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that that's what he has in mind when he thinks about it, despite some of, some of the rhetoric. But what's beautiful is that it does not end with Sanders. The Democratic platform has shifted so far to this progressive vision in what I believe is a relatively short time that I'm confident that we are moving in the, in the right direction towards achieving these goals, that the population seems to be moving in this direction, that there is a backlash from this neoliberal movement of stagnant wages for so long, yeah. and then having somebody like Donald Trump in office, whose rhetoric no longer allows us to hide behind euphemized racism that is so evident and clear in his cannibalization of, of people, particularly Latinx populations, that, that we, we, we have to have this race conscious bill. So I, you know, I point out Sanders, but there are others in the Democratic Party who are running for president and who are in Congress that are taking on this economic bill of rights. Now, we need to be careful because there is this, this tendency in this myopic transactional approach where we think in order to win the election, we can't be so bold. We can't have this big vision. So we start going towards centrist or, or people to bring us right back in that neoliberal moment where they're simply trying to tinker around the edges of market with some some thought of market failure and only if we can get the structures to behave more market-like as, as opposed to ensuring 
the rights to certain economic goods and services. There's that, there's that concern that we might get pulled back into that same direction, again, under the guise of some transactional politics, which I actually think is wrong. I actually think that that transactional approach provided a pathway for somebody like Donald Trump to come into office. Donald Trump captured the fact that America had stagnant wages. He captured it by selling white people privilege, by selling white people, however unequal you may be, I'm gonna build that wall to keep Mexicans out. He literally said in his campaign slogans, I'm your last chance. And that was an overture to what is seemingly this demographic change in which the white population will no longer be the numerical majority. Now, of course, you and I both know the definition of white changes over time, so who knows what that's <laughs> but, yeah. but nonetheless, he played into that. So, you know, those are the things that one give me hope, but two give me caution. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna end by shouting out young people. We have a tendency as we age to look back at other generate younger generations and and characterize them as being part of the problem, over romanticizing what we did <laughs> during our generation. Now, you know, your generation did a whole lot with regards to civil rights and, and uh, created pathways that didn't exist prior. My generation got seduced by Reaganomics. My generation got seduced into this notion that if I get to my Ivy League school, I'm gonna be fine. I have the pathway towards economic security. This younger generation is like, we're not tolerating climate change. We're not tolerating injustice. We're not tolerating women not having uh, a, a status and, and uh, rights to not be sexually assaulted or control of their bodies. This younger generation is, is, seems to be more firmly grounded in justice, and that gives me hope. So I'm, I'm looking forward to their, to their ascendancy and leadership. I, I do too, and the one caution I would have, it has nothing to do with the youth leadership, that, that would probably save us if nothing else does, is that one danger you point out is the general election campaign being yanked back toward the center in the name of winning, and we know that never works. Yep. <laughs> but the other danger is who gets appointed to the major cabinet and administrative posts. Are we going to have another Treasury, Treasury Secretary from Wall Street once again? Yeah. Are we going to put teeth in, in enforcement? I mean, one of the things that uh, Haynes Walton, uh, the great black political scientist, uh, pointed out many, many years ago is that you can have all the best legislation in the world, but if you don't put money in enforcement, if you were saying just a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. So the, the question of implementation after a win is also extraordinarily critical. Yeah, which, which again is why, you know, I trust Sanders. He's been saying this rhetoric for a long time, even when it was super unpopular and he was criticized as some radical pie in the sky guy. But now his ideas are coming to fruition and I trust him to put in place people that would resemble his rhetoric. On that unusually hopeful note, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Oh man, <laughs> it's a privilege to speak with you. <laughs> Also follow us on Twitter at Race Capitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.